Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I'd like to wish all my listeners a happy St. Patrick's Day. In today's episode, I am doing again something a little different, and I want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day and also the 100-year anniversary of the Easter Rising that occurred in 1916 in Ireland. So this will be a commemorative episode celebrating this anniversary of Ireland's 1916 Easter Rising in which the Proclamation of the Republic was read by Patrick Pearce at four minutes past noon on Easter Monday, April 24th from the steps of the General Post Office on Sackville Street, which is now known as O'Connell Street. And this document proclaimed Ireland's independence from Great Britain. So what I want to do here is do a comparison between Ireland's economy of 1916 and what it looks like today in 2016. And there's going to be quite a few statistics in here, so I hope you get to catch up, And but you could also get the actual show notes or transcript of this episode on economicrockstar.com forward slash Ireland. So just a little background, a brief background on Ireland, and um, what we're looking at and how Ireland transitioned as a country and an economy up to 1916. So Ireland, under the rule of Great Britain, consisted of 32 counties compared to today, which has 27 counties, and you have Northern Ireland and five of those counties are with Great Britain still. But the 32-county economy experienced a period of unprecedented prosperity, mainly due to the positive economic effects of the First World War. However, since the Great Irish Famine of 1846, Ireland experienced mass emigration and large numbers of deaths. Over 1 million people died in Ireland and 5 million people had emigrated over that period from 1851 to about 1916. The Irish population actually peaked at about 8 million just prior to the Great Irish Famine and dwindled all the way down to 3 million come 1916. So the Irish economy was ruled by Great Britain and its economy became increasingly tied to trends in global markets due to that exposure through Britain. So the cost of living increased and there were some rises in living standards. However, these were subject to sharp declines due to the recessions of 1859 to 1863 and 1877 to 1880. And poverty was widespread and tensions between landlords and tenant farmers escalated because Ireland was a predominantly a, an agricultural society. So despite this poverty, Irish living standards were above most of Eastern and Central European but income levels remained below the UK and the US. So as I mentioned, Ireland was predominantly an agricultural society and its economy was increasingly reliant on this particular industry, along with linen production, shipbuilding, in which the Titanic was built up north in Northern Ireland, and also brewing and distilling. However, agricultural exports were heavily dependent on Great Britain and shipbuilding was dependent on outdated industry and eventually that shipbuilding ended up collapsing not long after the First World War. So the First World War of 1914 brought about this period of prosperity for Ireland due also to the increased demand for food, linen and ships that were directly linked to the war effort. However, the prosperity wasn't shared by all. So some tensions did exist, but mainly from those in the lower or middle class. So 
what did the Irish economy of 1916 look like compared to its economy today, 100 years on? And just before we go into this with some statistics, the statistics I use are coming from official sources and some of them are not exactly at 1916. So we use, say, for example, 1911, which is one of the periods where the census was recorded in Ireland. And it gives an extremely good insight as to what the economy looked like back then. So firstly, the population. Now, the population of Ireland in 1916 was one of the lowest recorded in its history. According to the population of census of 1911, the population stood at just 3.14 million. And it represented a country devastated by debt caused by the Great Irish Famine over a half a century previous and a subsequent mass emigrator that ensued. So Ireland never recovered from that traumatic period in its recent history. But today, Ireland's population has somewhat recovered to 4.59 million people. And this is an increase of about 46%. However, many have emigrated due to the financial crisis of 2007. So we had reached over 5 million people prior to this recession. Most of the people who have emigrated would have been Ireland's youth and also some immigrants from other countries who had decided to leave. So we have reverted to being a net emigration population after a period of becoming a net immigrant population, attracting workers from overseas, as well as bringing Irish people home who had emigrated in the recent past, say, for example, in the 1980s. Emigration for the whole island of Ireland in 1916 was 7,366 people. And that represented 17 per 10,000 of the population. And I just state that figure because I want to make a direct comparison with today's one. So 7,366 people emigrated from Ireland in 1916. Now that is considered small for Ireland, but this level of emigration had actually fallen substantially due to the outbreak of the Great War in 1914. And the latest data for 2015 shows emigration for the Republic at 80,900. And that represents 175 per 10,000 of the population. So comparing to 1916, even though we had a period of prosperity, but there was some traumatic experiences for those who are, were poor and Ireland was considered an, a country who had a lot of emigrants going to, say, for example, the United States back then. 17 per 10,000 in 1916 compared to 175 per 10,000 today. Now, unusually, what I, I came across this statistic quite recently and I was actually quite surprised. In 1916, emigration consisted of 5,580 females and only 1,786 males. And that is quite inconsistent with our other European counterparts, such as Spain and Italy. Okay, The ratio is extremely high, almost two and a half times female to male, whereas in other countries, it's, it's the opposite, two to one. So this is quite a, a surprising statistic because I didn't expect that to be the case. And I, I suppose there's a nu numerous reasons for this. Typically, the male would have received the land passed down from the father, given that we were very much an agricultural society. And there wasn't much in terms of a profession that females could go into. And the only alternative 
profession, if you want to call it that, was to become a nun. And almost all, almost 40% of Irish females ended up being a nun, especially during that wartime period and thereafter. But the four main destinations for Irish emigrants in 1916 was, number one, the United States, secondly, the United Kingdom, then Canada, and then Australia, and then other countries. But in 2015, the UK was the main destination for Irish emigrants as an individual country. Many had gone to within the EU, but as a, as a single country, the UK was the main destination today. Only 7% of emigrants in Ireland or from Ireland went to the US in 2015 compared to 58% in 1916. So that's a substantial reversal. And I don't know what the reasons are, but maybe again, it's due to the financial crisis that the United States might have been hit with too. And Irish people went to those countries who were not as affected by the financial crisis, such as Canada and Australia, which were seen as a favourable destination today. So the Irish diaspora abroad is extremely large, and despite being a small island off Western Europe, Irish smiles have been welcomed all over the world. And ancestry can be traced back to Ireland, particularly for those living in the United States. And the UK, Argentina, Australia and Canada are other examples of countries which have a large Irish diaspora. But today it is estimated, and I couldn't get over this, and it is just an estimate, there are 80 million people of Irish descent who are claimed to have Irish descent who are living around the world today. 80 million. And the population of Ireland, just over 4.5 million today. So based on our emigration and our history of emigration, and this is going back to the 17th century, not only just because of the famine and people emigrating, 5 million people emigrating in the mid-1800s, but going back to the 17th century, people had emigrated to many countries, Argentina, uh, some in the Caribbean, some African countries. There are many people out there who are of direct descent of Irish people or who can trace their heritage back to Ireland. 80 million people. So it's no wonder that in some way we celebrate almost collectively St. Patrick's Day. Other than the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, Montserrat in the Caribbean is the only other country where St. Patrick's Day is a public holiday. Now, I was surprised by that fact that there was another country that has a, an actual public holiday to celebrate today's festival, St. Patrick's Day. And I had to dig deeper to find out why. So Montserrat is known as the Emerald Isle of the Caribbean. And Ireland, as you may be aware, is also known as the Emerald Isle. The heritage of Montserrat, the Irish heritage of Montserrat, dates back to the 17th century, when the island became a safe haven for the Irish who were originally sent to the Caribbean as slaves by Great Britain's leader, Oliver Cromwell. So many people who would have obviously lived in Ireland, an agricultural society, the great British leader Oliver Cromwell had come in, taken the land and shared it out to the aristocrats and the arist aristocracy and gave them to landlords and shipped out a lot of Irish people as slaves to further Britain's interest elsewhere. 
uh, in the world. And one of those examples would have been in the Caribbean. But Irish people living in the Caribbean were exiled and found a safe haven in Montserrat. A census in 1678 showed that more than half of the population on that island were actually Irish. So that was just a synopsis on population and our relationship with emigration. I want to take you back again to 1916. Again, this was a period where World War One was ongoing. Prosperity was good for Ireland at that particular point in time. But there were a class of people who remained poor and were subjected to starvation. And what I want to kind of look at now is life expectancy. We had a cons- consensus of 1911, which is available. I'll put it all show notes. You might be living in a country and you might have some suspicion that you were of Irish descent. And it's great to have a look at this census, 1911 census. I'll put the link on the show notes. And if you have any inkling of your family history name it's all, and the location of your great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather, where they might have lived in Ireland at that particular point in time, it's a great resource. It's all digital. You can uh, look it up there. But according to those records in 1911, the life expectancy for a male born in Ireland was 53.6 years and for a female, 54.1 years. And like any other country who had a lower life expectancy back then, today that substantially has changed. A male born in Ireland today has a life expectancy of 78.3 years and a female, 82.7. So there's a quite a substantial increase in your life expectancy and obviously due to inventions and discoveries like penicillin and better health care, etc., better sanitation. But despite the period of prosperity back in 1911, Ireland remained divided in terms of the gap between the wealth and the poor. And much of rural Ireland in the west of the country lived as an agrarian society dependent on agriculture for a living. But living standards were much lower relative to other parts of the country, especially in the urban areas. Urban areas didn't escape the ravages of poverty. Inequality was more prevalent in urban towns, particularly in Dublin City. I suppose you had a more of a upper class living in the city rather than in rural countryside. So the, the disparity was quite pronounced at that particular point in time. And despite a boom in food and linen exports in 1916, the Irish poor remained hungry. So poverty levels in Ireland today, in comparison to 1916, today they're at 8%, with households consisting of one adult and one or more dependent children considered most at risk. And that seems to be a consistent level in Ireland over the last decade or so, approximately 8% with single parent, one or more adult at risk of poverty today. And rural Ireland, including the west of Ireland, has a higher incidence of this poverty than the rest of the country. So something similar um, when we look or compare to 1916. So as the saying goes, things change but always stay the same. Many adults and children perished in 1916 due to influenza, bronchitis and tuberculosis. And these were the leading causes of death in Ireland along with heart disease. But today... Heart disease is the leading cause of death or one of the leading causes of death in Ireland with fewer incidences of death from the other forms I just mentioned, like the influenza. But the number of deaths by suicide that was officially recorded in 1916 were 68 compared to 459 for 2014. So the population has increased from 3.14 million in 1916 to about 
4.6 million today in 2016. So just to put it into some comparative context, two per 100,000 of the population in 1916 died by suicide, whereas 10 per 100,000 of the population died by suicide. So we can see that there's an, an obvious problem with mental health today. The next part of Ireland's economy I want to take a look at now is housing. And this was one of the most hotly debated issue in Ireland during the recent government elections. Ireland's macroeconomy of 2016 is showing remarkable progress since the recession, bailout and financial crisis. And for some reason, Ireland seems to have a love affair with housing. And I don't know whether it goes back to the 17th century when Oliver Cromwell took over the lands and handed them to our uh, English landlords and aristocrats, or whether there was large-scale evictions during the Great Irish Famine in the mid-1800s. But we seem to have this desire to own our own property. And it, it is deeply rooted in our history. So during the boom from, say, 1998 to 2007, Irish house prices soared in value, only to come crashing down, as we know, once the crisis hit. And at its peak, over 90,000 houses were built in Ireland. And this was around 2007. But today, that figure only stands at 11,000 houses being completed. So we have now a dire shortage or dire scarcity of property in Ireland's market housing market. The Irish housing market is under immense stress with demand outstripping supply and this shortage is resulting in much higher rents than what was recorded during the boom period. House prices are recovering and have recovered substantially but recent government legislation is making it quite difficult for landlords who are selling their property or evicting their tenants in order to capture the higher rental yields. And they're also making it quite difficult, especially due to the Ireland Central Bank passing minimum deposit requirements for first-time buyers, etc. So there's a difficulty for entering the markets and also banks unwilling to lend. So Ireland is undergoing a housing crisis. A lot of young people, a lot of people coming to Ireland from abroad looking for suitable accommodation, especially in Dublin City, are finding it extremely, extremely difficult to find this suitable property and rents are approximately averaging about 14 1500 euro per month and during the boom period i'd say it would have averaged about 1100 euro so some landlords want to evict the current tenants in order to capture this higher rental yield so they're not locked into a certain ongoing agreement that they might have with the current tenant but it might also be the result of some landlords preferring to rent out to holiday owners who might use Airbnb, but that's only speculative. But going back to the housing crisis today in Ireland and comparing to 1916, again, Ireland was quite prosperous at that period of time in 1916, but we experienced a severe housing crisis, particularly in Dublin and other cities but most notably Dublin, mainly due to the records that were taken. And they became these cities became quite infamous for the living conditions of its citizens. And we had tenements, what are known as tenements. They were like large Georgian housing that was suitable just for one family, but many impoverished families lived in them. And this marked a very bleak period in recent Irish history. 
and it could have been possibly the catalyst for the Easter Rising that ensued during that period, whereby some of what are, were known as the Irish Volunteers wanted to break away from English rule. And there, that sentiment that was just below that prosperity, the sentiment that was experienced by people who felt impoverished or just wanted some particular freedoms and rights. Many families, multiple families, they actually shared these large terraced houses known as tenements with extremely poor sanitary and hygiene conditions. Usually there was only one toilet outside, maybe one tap as well. And up to 12 to 17 families may have to share that one toilet. And all those families would have lived in this one house and they would have been given one room per family. And at times there could have been more than one family in that room. And Ireland at that period of time had large families and family sizes of eight or 10 children were not unusual. So you can imagine the squalid and cramped conditions that these families had to endure. And there were actually recorded cases of 104 people occupying a single house built to accommodate one family. So Dublin city, the capital of Ireland, at the time, there were about 25,000 families that were living in these tenement buildings and 20,000 of those families occupied single rooms and in some cases with other families. Many evictions took place as families fell behind in the rent for these tenements and because of the large family size, the children and obviously the parents faced starvation. So the parents would have sent their children out to queue for bread, which was handed out by some of the religious orders back then. And it was no wonder that we had high incidences of death by influenza, tuberculosis and bronchitis because of the these damp conditions also and the ease at which TB could have been spread from one person to the next given they were living in such close proximity to one another. In the west of Ireland, which would have been considered the rural, rural part of Ireland, many people actually had emigrated due to food shortages and abandoned their homes. And this was the norm in the latter part of the 19th century up to 1916. And it is ironic that Ireland, being an agricultural society, actually had to endure poverty when it came to food shortages. But despite many empty homes in these rural parts of Ireland, many families suffered homelessness, extremely poor living conditions and starvation in the urban parts. And comparing that to today, and it's it, you can't really make a comparison, but it is so ironic that due to the housing crisis that Ireland is experiencing today in 2016, there are some echoes of the past. For example, homelessness has jumped 100% since last year, 2015 to 2016. And over 700 families, families, not people, over 700 families are living in emergency accommodation in hotels and guest houses. Evictions are up significantly and there are currently 17,000 people in the courts who are at risk of losing their homes. And how like 1916 we are today, where food parcels are being handed out each week and the numbers queuing each week is rising. And it is ironic that where these food parcels are being handed out is where the old tenements used to be of 1916. The next aspect of the Irish economy I'd like to take a look at is employment. 
Now, the Irish economy in 1916 was transitioning toward becoming an industrial nation. And what I mean by transitioning is moving away from an agricultural dependency towards manufacturing. So Ireland was by no means considered backward and was in fact placed in a group of middle-ranking industrialised countries along with the Netherlands, the Scandinavian countries, Italy and Portugal. For example, about 27% of workers in 1911 worked in manufacturing jobs compared to 8.6% in 2011. An estimated 150,000 men had joined the British Army in 1916, and many men and women went to the UK to find employment in munition factories and hospitals, and wages had increased during this time. Now, I don't know if wages had increased substantially more than inflation, something I'll just briefly take a look at at the end of this podcast episode, but we would like to think and hope that wages would have increased more so than the price inflation that was experienced at that particular point in time, because if not, obviously, as we know, if you're interested in economics, your purchasing power declines. But almost 50% of the working population were employed in the agricultural sector in 1911. I'm sure there's some stereotype in terms of looking at Irish people. I know myself when I talk to some students from abroad who come here and I ask them, what's the first few things you think of Ireland? And they might say bacon or potatoes. So we haven't necessarily shaken off the perception that we are an agricultural society, even though we've moved completely away from this. I know we might be producing a lot more agricultural produce than 1916, but that's mainly due to improved agricultural methods. So even though about 50% of the working population were employed in the agricultural sector in 1911, as I mentioned earlier. This compares to just under 5% in 2011, which is the last census that was recorded. So that was a significant drop and a, quite a move away from our dependency on agriculture as one of the main sectors for our economy and for exports. Now, in 1911... 8.8% of the labour force in Ireland worked in the professional group of occupations. And by 2011, these workers now account for over 40% of the Irish workforce. And that, that's including clerical work, healthcare, professions like accountancy, etc. Okay, so that's a, a significant increase. Now, I don't have unemployment levels for 1916, possibly because they weren't necessarily recorded and maybe a lot of labour was part-time and you could just get you could people only took what they could get there was no reassurance possibly i'm only speculating here that there was a steady income or steady employment but today unemployment in ireland is approximately 8.8 percent and that's coming down from a recent high of about 14 and a half percent at the peak in say about 2008 2009 so the next aspect of the Irish economy, to make a comparison, a 100-year comparison from 1916 to 2016, is exports. And I alluded to some of this already earlier on, whereby we were predominantly an agricultural-based society in 1911, but we also were quite efficient and quite good at linen production, as well as shipbuilding and brewery and distilling. But Ireland in 1916 mostly consisted of these indigenous industries and 85,000 workers were employed in linen production with over 18 million pounds in weight of linen yarn and 112 million pounds in weight of finished linen goods exported. So that was quite a substantial industry, 85,000 workers and all of that linen and 
the linen goods being exported. Now, prior to the outbreak of World War One in 1914, about 70% of these exports were to, to the United States. However, between 1914 and 1918, during the war period, linen was in great demand for military purposes by the British Army for items such as tents, haversacks, hospital equipment and aeroplane fabric. So we had to refocus based on the war effort. But today, much of the traditional industry is gone. We saw a huge decline in agriculture, even though the number of farmlands have actually increased, the number of cattle has actually increased, number of sheep have increased over that 100-year period. But things have become more efficient in terms of agriculture. But when it comes to linen and textiles, there was a massive decline. And that's probably due to competition from other countries. But to bring my own personal family history into this, my family remains one of a few linen weavers in Ireland today, okay, producing the best Irish linen in the market with exports to countries, mostly to Japan, the United States and Italy. So I'm personally proud of my father for carrying on this tradition. And it wasn't that wasn't his main motive, obviously, to carry on tradition, but it was within his entrepreneurial instinct to actually go on and continue on with linen production in Ireland. Many thought he was mad. He was crazy going into something that was a dying business or a dying industry, but he's able to weather all the recessions that have come since the 1970s or the 1960s and continues to operate today. So I'm personally proud of my own father for what he has achieved and for extending this Irish tradition of producing the finest Irish linen in the world. Now, Ireland is considered a small open economy and the UK still remains one of our largest trading partners and the Irish economy attracts many multinational companies to locate here. We have that dependency on foreign countries. And when I say foreign, foreign to Ireland. And it has replaced the, our dependency on the indigenous industry like our linen, agriculture, brewing and shipping. But in 2016, Ireland ranks among the top countries regarding industrial competitiveness and ease of doing business. And maybe it's because we open our borders or it's our access to the European Union that we have, we were able to attract and be, and make foreign companies confident to do business here in Ireland. And this only really happened, say, from the 1960s onward. Now, the Guinness Brewery, and I'm sure you're familiar with Guinness. The Guinness Brewery was the main brewery in Ireland. And in 1916, it had the largest output of any brewery in the world brewing more than two-thirds of all brew beer in Ireland. The largest exporting sectors in Ireland during 1916 were woolens, brewing, butter, bacon, poultry, cattle, cotton goods and linen. And the sectors that were in decline included horses, whiskey, pigs and sheep. So again, you might notice there a lot of the these words or these items are synonymous with Ireland. Uh, even though, and, and, and they continue to be so, and we're proud of it. We're proud of it. And Ireland had a trade surplus of £1.5 million. Pounds. And when I say pounds, it's the English-Irish pounds at that particular point in time in 1916. So a trade surplus of £1.5 million. Pounds. So that just goes to show how Ireland was doing at that particular point in time where it's net export. it was a net exporting country. So it's exporting more than it was importing and a balance surplus of 11.1 million pounds. 
For the latest data today, which is January 2016, Ireland is also operating a trade surplus of 5 billion euro. So Ireland's largest exporting sectors today are medical and pharmaceutical products, representing about 27% of our total exports, office machines and automatic data processing machines, and food and live animals, which represents about 8% of our total exports. And I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know that, not even Irish people, that our one our leading exporting sector is medical and pharmaceutical. Now, the EU accounts for about 56% of the total value of Irish goods exported. And believe it or not, Belgium is Ireland's largest export trading partner, accounting for about 15% of the total value of goods exported. But Great Britain or the United Kingdom, I could use these interchangeably, sorry, remains Ireland's single largest source of imports, with 25% of the total value of goods imported to Ireland. And this has probably come as no surprise, but the United States of America remains Ireland's largest non-EU destination for exports and imports. So we've always had that good relationship with the United States historically. And I don't know, it's, it's possibly why we were attracted to the US, and it's probably because of their own independence Uh, And it was seen as a thriving economy when Irish people emigrated after the Great Irish Famine. And perhaps we have this deep-rooted bond with the United States. And this is all represented on St. Patrick's Day, where our Prime Minister, or Taoiseach as we call him, gifts a crystal bowl full of shamrock to the US President. And this is tradition going back decades. We're almost there, but I want to take a look at... GDP briefly and then inflation because it, the GDP tends to be synonymous with economic activity or productivity or growth. But unfortunately, we don't have any GDP statistics going back to 1911. But we were able to get or I was able to source some estimates and I got them from a couple of sources. And I'd like to maybe express one of them because they're expressed in dollars and they make it somewhat relative to today's values. According to the international Geary Camus dollars, and this is something I just discovered recently again. Ireland's GDP per capita in 1913 was $2,736. Now, to put that into some perspective, US GDP per capita at the time was $5,301. So just almost half that of the US. And UK's was 4921 So despite being under British rule, our GDP per capita was significantly lower than the UK's. So this seems to suggest that incomes had yet to converge with those in Great Britain. However, in another study that I looked at by economist Kevin O'Rourke of the Department of Economics at University College Dublin, he had a proxy measure for GDP per capita in Ireland, which in Irish or in pounds at the time was £32.50. And that in dollars, if you want to make a comparable to the International Geary Kaimis dollars study worked out at about $1,800 and that compared to about $2,700. So this was based on a GDP estimate of £150 million. And again, to put this into some context, the GDP per capita in 1864 was 1250 or £12.50. So this represented over 160% increase in nominal terms between the period of the Great Famine and the Great War. 
And that's a significant increase if you want to put it into that, into percentages. So Irish GDP per capita converged on the UK average during this time, according to Kevin O'Rourke. But according to the International Geary Camus dollars, they had yet to converge. So that's open to debate. So Ireland would have been considered one of the poorest Western European countries, along with Greece, Italy, Portugal and Spain. And yes, there's that familiar acronym for the financial crisis, so these countries that I just mentioned here, they seem to be the ones that were always on the periphery or known as the peripheral economies and were brought into the EU in order to try and bring them up to standards similar to the Germany and France and the UK. Today, Ireland is considered one of the richest countries in the world with GDP per capita of just under $49,000, placing the country in 10th position with the US in ninth and the UK in 19th, according to the World Bank. So that's a significant change from 1913, where our GDP per capita was almost half that of the US and considerably lower than the UK's. And now we're ranked ninth, just as something novel or a novel approach, because sometimes we need proxy variables to get some kind of understanding based on Irish purchases or even purchases from other countries. And it's quite meaningless, this statistic, but there were about 9,850 cars registered in Ireland in 1915 with over 2 million privately registered cars today. Completely meaningless. I know cars are only uh, being rolled out by the likes of Henry Ford, but again, a significant contribution to how we have developed over this 100-year period. And finally, regarding inflation, again, I alluded to this earlier on, but due to the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 and the resulting scarcity of goods, inflation in Ireland increased considerably by over 200% during that wartime period as measured by the wholesale price index. We didn't have a consumer price index back then, but a 200% increase from 1914 to 1918 for wholesale prices. So you can only imagine how expensive things got. I doubt wages increased at this particular point by over 200% in order to maintain people's purchasing parity. But unless that wage inflation was outpacing price inflation in 1916, which was very unlikely, in general, families must have experienced a real reduction in the purchasing power of their pounds. And pounds at that time was um, the currency for Ireland. These increases in prices were also due to government policy, which increased taxes and duties on various products, perhaps to pay for the war effort. And when I say the government, I mean the UK government. And again, just to put it into some perspective, comparing 1916 to the present day, the retail price of butter, tea and eggs were very expensive back then. So, for example, the price of a pound of butter then would have cost, in today's money, €7.35. That's updated to today's consumer price index. And that's compared to what we would pay right now at about €2.79. So for the same pound of butter, seven thirty-five in euro in 1916 compared to €2.79. So I hope this gives some kind of snapshot as to a 100-year history of the Irish economy. I know there's a lot more statistics that we could get into, I don't want to cover everything in this podcast, but I will put up many links on the show notes page showing my sources of information where you could find fantastic resources, infographics. Most of the information I got here was is from a fantastic Irish 
website called cso.ie, the Central Statistics Office, which is the main body of information. They do the census, etc. They do all household surveys. They gather all information. And I love if you could check them out. Very much interactive. You can download a lot of the data into Excel files. It's used in universities, colleges, schools. And if you're doing a project on an economy, why not go and do something for Ireland to celebrate St. Patrick's Day or even the centenary, the 100-year anniversary of the Easter Rising? So please check out the show notes page on economicrockstar.com forward slash Ireland. I'd love to hear your comments, share your own statistics or data, especially if you're living in another country. I'd love to read some of your comments or statistics if you're making comparisons like this 100-year comparison, even if it's a statistic like births, employment levels, inflation, trade surpluses or deficits. I'd love to hear and see them, especially if they're in a graphical form or just a quick sentence. Go to the show notes page, economicrockstar.com forward slash Ireland and type in your comments. I'd love to hear and I'm sure people who visit the website would love to see those comments too. Again, happy St. Patrick's Day. I hope you celebrate it with, with us all here and light up the place green. Thanks a million and here's to good health. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email and you will get each episode straight to your inbox.